Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 904. We are back for the new year, and today we have a guest interview before a conversation about stolen base analysis. To start things off, David Lorela is joined by Jesse Aguilar, broadcaster for the San Diego Padres. David and Jesse discuss things like being fans of Everton FC, how fun it is to hang out with Don Orsillo, and of course, the undeniable hype surrounding the upcoming Padres season following their flurry of recent moves. I was talking to somebody about it the other day, and I said, you know, this year, I think without question, will be the most anticipated season in Padre history. After that, Eric Longenhagen and Ben Clemens discuss an article Ben recently wrote called, Do Successful Steals Apply Measurable Pressure? While the results were telling in their own right, Eric and Ben raised new questions about the unseen effects of stolen bases and how they make an impact not reflected in the box score. Yeah, particularly given that the minors are generally much steal happier than the majors. Right. I think if you had a pitcher who fell apart every time anyone successfully stole a base off of him, well, he'd have to be really good to keep advancing because there's a lot of stolen bases in baseball. Like, even now, even with fewer, it's going to happen to you. Fangraphs Audio is presented by our listeners and supporters. If you would like to help us out, you can leave us an iTunes rating or review, or tell a friend about the show, or you can always consider an ad-free membership at Fangraphs.com. Being a member is the best way to support the site, and it makes for a great gift, too. Thank you for all of your help. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Jesse Agler, the radio voice of the San Diego Padres, or I guess I should maybe say one of the radio voices or the younger voice of the Padres. Jesse, your broadcast partner, has been around for quite a few years. Yes, Ted Leitner. I'm going to screw up the math. I didn't do it beforehand. His first year in the booth was 1980. We just finished 2020. Uh, So that's, what, 41 seasons? That's actually fairly simple math, okay. Jesse. I know this is fan graphs, okay? But look, I, I am I am arithmetically challenged, if that's a word, and I don't think it is. Uh, so yeah, he just finished, I think, what is that, his 41st, I said, season behind the mic for the Padres, uh, a legend here in San Diego and across baseball. And yeah, I'm 38 years old. So he's been in the booth longer than I have been alive. I do bring that up on occasion to him, which he loves, as I'm sure you can guess. And uh, we have a we have a great time together. We've been called the odd couple of times, but uh, it's a it's a wonderful relationship. It really is. Right. And the two of you call games for a team that has gotten more than a little bit of buzz recently. Yes, we're uh, we're we're the we're the it team right now. And um, obviously, the, the goal is to be the it team at the end of October, not the first week of January. But nonetheless, it's it's been thrilling. And, and the cool thing about it is it's not just this week. It's not just the last, you know, few days and these last two acquisitions. This is something that has been building and building and building for really five years, if you ask A.J. Preller, the general manager. And, you know, I, I think the reality is getting a front row seat to everything that's been going on. I've gotten to see like almost the entire cycle here, right? We always talk about how teams kind of tear down and build up and that uh, competitive window and all that. I've gotten to see the window open and open and open. And then last year, I think the team really kind of kicked it in. And um, it, it's been a phenomenal thing to get to watch. I've really enjoyed it so much, obviously. I mean, what what baseball fan wouldn't enjoy a front row seat to this? And, you know, it really does feel, and I'm not saying this as a company man, it really does feel like the best is yet to come, you know, with this team. And and I would have said that had they not acquired uh, a pair of aces, uh, you know, in the last week with with Darvish and Snell. So it's uh, it, it really is a heck of a time to be here. Yes. And we will definitely talk about the team uh, on this podcast. But let's first talk about the fact that the Padres TV broadcast duo came in sixth in uh, Fangraph's crowdsource rankings. 
I think they were robbed, right? Yes. I mean, look, I, I, I don't like to uh, necessarily uh, put public critiques out of other broadcast teams uh, because I know how hard this is and it, it's uh, perhaps a little uncouth. Um, but, you know, other rankings have had them number one, I'll just say, fan graph readers. Um, but uh, they they are uh, incredibly talented, entertaining broadcasters. But for me, on like the personal level of being around them every single day, in a normal year at least, you know, for seven straight months, basically, two of just the most wonderful people, you know, two of the most wonderful human beings. Uh, Don and I are, are seatmates on the plane. Again, in a normal year when we're traveling, we sit next to each other, we play cards, uh, we, we BS, um, and we talk. And I have learned so much about broadcasting and just sort of the world of baseball from Don. He is as good at his job as anybody is in baseball. And so I feel just kind of lucky. He's also like even funnier in person than he is on television. So all those like, you know, side stitching, hilarious moments people see on social media, like I, I get the unfiltered ones of those. And like, like he makes me funny, you know, because like you just start bantering back and forth. And, and so we have probably more fun than should be allowed. Uh, and his his partner on TV, who I, you know, when I sub in for Don on TV, I get the opportunity to work with Mark Grant. Uh, Mark, I'll start here, is is perhaps the kindest human being I've ever known in my life. I mean, he's like a teddy bear. He's one of those guys. He is a, and this is probably boring podcast, just endlessly praising people I work with. But I mean, Mud is really one of the nicest humans I have ever known in my entire life. And and I mean that sincerely. Um, he is such a good person. And um, obviously he has, I think, perfectly nailed the role uh, on television in terms of uh, this character, which I guess really isn't much of a character because it's just who he is, like this goofy, lovable, um, you know, fun-having guy. And I think that those two have achieved... And, and I'll throw the Mets guys in there on TV. I'll throw the Giants guys in there on TV, just kind of off the top of my head. That broadcast nirvana that is so hard to reach, where if you are watching and listening as a fan, you just sort of feel like you're hanging out with a couple of your friends. And and to me, that is like the ultimate, ultimate goal. And it is near impossible to do. And uh, as mentioned, they do it as well as anyone. Mr. Benetti and Mr. Stone with the White yes, Sox. Yes, absolutely. They, they absolutely. belong very, very high on that list. Yes, Don actually, you know, it's funny, Don came up to me one day this summer and, you know, he was like, I was watching the White Sox game a little bit this afternoon. He's like, they are so good together. And I was like, yeah, they really are. And then he and I, Don and I had like a five minute conversation about how good the White Sox telecast is. So yes, I apologize for for leaving them out initially. You're right. Anybody that you don't mention, Jesse, is going to come after you. Yeah, I know. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a rough year in the National League now. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I think we need to jump back to uh, you playing cards with uh, with Don Orsillo. What okay. do you what what do you play, and who typically wins? Uh, well, it's funny because we do keep track of such things. Uh, of course, so again, <laughs> twenty twenty was a wash. Um, you know, we didn't travel, so you got to go back to twenty nineteen. Uh, we played cribbage. Uh, that's our game of choice. It was kind of like a funny thing is that we both played growing up with our dads cribbage um he he played with his dad you know when he was younger i played with my dad when i was younger and i don't think either one of us had played since we were like 20 years old or, or maybe even younger uh and then somehow in conversation a couple of years ago it came up i don't know how but it came up we both knew how to play and we were like oh this that's awesome so we played cribbage i kicked his ass in 2019 but it was kind of neat because it's one of those games it's like fairly complicated and i don't have the the temperament or the patience to explain or teach cribbage to anybody else so i just hadn't played you know like i don't know the last time i played cards with my dad probably overdue for that but you know so it was kind of neat to sort of uh, get back into it and we had the rules wrong in certain places for like the first three months i remember and then we kind of did a google search and we were like oh man we've been doing this all wrong 
but we have a, a very good time playing. No money is exchanged hands. It's just a, you know, it's, it's one of those gentlemen's agreements. Maybe somebody has to go and get the snacks on the back of the plane or something like that uh, if they lose. But uh, we, we have a, a very good time. And it's funny because cribbage is, again, I don't think something that a lot of people play. So we get a lot of weird looks from people kind of walking by and they're like, what are those guys doing? There's a board and some cards and um, that kind of thing. But that's okay. We have fun. And uh, I did win the season series in 2019. Somewhere in a, in a notes file on my phone, I have the final score. I want to say I probably won like 55, 60 times, and he won maybe 40 times, something like that. I certainly hope that Don listens to this podcast so he can hear you say that. Oh, I've said it to his face. I, I taunt him. Uh, I, 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 I don't let him forget that. And I've told him now, too, that I am the now back-to-back reigning champion because he did not dethrone me in 2020. Ah, uh, Yeah, Jesse, let's talk about expectations, uh, not just in San Diego with the Padres, but but sports as a whole. I think it's fair to say that the Kansas City Chiefs are probably, you know, the NFL's Dodgers right now. You know, they, They are supposed to win the Super Bowl this year. And if they do not, their fans will be disappointed. What do you expect to happen and how should the fans react to a team that does go far? It's, it's a really interesting question because I, I, I was talking to somebody about it the other day and I said, you know, this year, I think without question, will be the most anticipated season in Padre history. And I, look, we all know it isn't the most illustrious history. You know, a, a pair of pennants and, and a single World, World Series win, you know, in those two years, 84 and 98 together. But nonetheless, I mean, there's there's never been the kind of excitement and hype surrounding a Padre team before the season began as, as there is, I think, coming into 2021. That said, I think the team... And the organization, and and I have to give credit here to baseball ops and to marketing and to ownership, they have been so transparent the last five years with the fan base. Here's the plan. Here's what we're doing. Here's how long we think it's going to take. That they have earned a trust that probably six years ago, nobody could have ever imagined that this franchise would have with this fan base. There was no trust. I arrived here. My first season was 2014 with the Padres. The way they were viewed in the market, uh, the way that they had sort of been through the ringer, the fans, in terms of ownership changes, fire sales, just bad baseball, all these kinds of things. I mean, there was no money in the bank. There really wasn't. That was my perception, at least. And to to see where they've come now, it's really not that many years later, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. But like the fans are so on board with the program. They understand everything that's gone on. And the Padres every year have done more to put money in the bank by taking money out of the bank, by spending money on Eric Cosmer, by spending money on Manny Machado, by absorbing the contract of you Darvish this year. They're showing the fans, hey, this is this is going to keep going. Like we're, we're just getting started now. And I, I think the fan base is so appreciative of that. I think also, look, this is a very good baseball town. It doesn't get talked about like that nationally, I think, because the team hasn't historically been very good. But baseball is huge here. You know, it isn't just Orange County. It isn't just L.A. where baseball is a really big deal in a communal sense. I mean, this is a great baseball town. People understand the game. They play the game. They grow up with the game here in San Diego. And so they get what's going on. And I think they realize, like, Padres are doing just about everything they possibly can to put themselves in position. And hey, last year, the way it ended, was that a bitter pill losing to the Dodgers in the postseason? Of course. But I think everybody knew, hey, if Mike Clevenger and Denelson Lament were healthy, it, it very well may have been a very different result in that division series. And the Dodgers, of course, go on to win the World Series and clearly on paper, one of the best teams maybe ever in baseball. Um, and the Padres are neck and neck with them right now. So um, there's a great appreciation, I think, of, of what's happened, what's happening, uh, that the plan is there, the plan is communicated, the plan has been executed, the plan even at times, it seems, is, is 
over-executed. Nobody thought that they were going to get Snell and Darvish. Maybe you add one guy like that. Maybe you sign a free agent pitcher. Everybody said, well, they got to add pitching. They got to add pitching. And then they went out and they acquired two of the best pitchers in, in baseball. So, I mean, they're in a way overperforming, I think, expectations. And again, I think the fan base understands what happens on the field, you know, will happen. I mean, there's quirkiness and there's weirdness, but this, this is a team set up to be really, really good. Right. So you don't think that the fans will be too crestfallen if, if they disappoint this year. You know, I brought up the Chiefs with the idea that they are, they did win a Super Bowl and the expectation is they will w- win again. So while I'm not in the Kansas City, you know, metro area, I would think a lot of their fans are still going to feel pretty bad if they don't repeat. Yeah, well, winning winning changes expectations, no doubt. So if the Padres go out and win the World Series this year, yeah, I think everything gets ratcheted up coming out of that, and that'll be just fine by me and everybody else. Um, so yes, I think there's an element of that. However, you know, I, I would say, because I say this all the time on the radio when we start having these conversations, I mean, just talked about the Dodgers. They are the perfect example. I mean, they won the division eight consecutive years. Was it three World Series in the last however many years? They've won one title since 1988 at this point. You know, I mean, you look at those Philly teams in the 2010s, right? They won one title. Um, you think about the Braves in the 90s. They won one title. You think about those great Met teams in the 80s. They won one title. It is really, really hard. Still, the last team to go back-to-back was the Yankees when they won 98-99 in 2000. The Cubs teams of this last era that now seems to be towards its end, who would have thought they'd only win one? Winning the championship, taking the big cake, as uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. called it this past year, is something that requires an inordinate amount of luck, it would seem, in addition to great planning and great purpose and great players. You know, you, you, you have to have things kind of fall into place. And I think any one of us would have said, well, of course that, that Philly team would have won more than one. Of course that Braves team would have won more than one. Of course that Cubs team would have won more than one. It doesn't always happen that way. So, you know, I think right now the focus, rightfully, in San Diego is get that first one out of the way and then... We'll worry about, you know, how many they they need to win in the window after that. Right. Much as uh, the Padres have been building, we both follow an English Premier League team, Everton, which is the arch rival of Liverpool. You know, they play, I think, about half a mile apart. Everton is is never good. They're never bad, but they're never good. This year, it looks like they're pretty good. I can imagine that if this team finally kicks the door in and gets to the top of the table, that, you know, the Liverpool area, the non-Liverpool team area, you know, will be ecstatic. It's a fun thing because I started following the Premier League in 06. I watched the World Cup that summer with my buddy Matt. Um, I was still living in Florida at the time. I was actually doing Marlins pre and post on the radio. That was like kind of my first big job, quote unquote. And uh, we got really into the World Cup that summer. And we we're like, all right, we're picking a team coming out of this summer. Like we're, we're you know, we're going to we're going to pick a Premier League team. Um, it was still kind of hard to get games on TV back then. So we said, all right, England has more games on television than any of these other leagues. And so we kind of did this deep dive because we're nerds. And we said, how are we going to choose a team? And, and I assume a lot of people who have, you know, started following European soccer in the last 15, 20 years in the U.S. have went through a similar process, right? All right, I'm going to cross off Man U. I'm going to cross off Liverpool. I'm going to cross off Chelsea. You know, I'm going to cross off, you know, the, the big teams. I'm going to cross off these teams at the bottom of the table because I'm not trying to earn heartbreak like immediately. You know, now let's sort of research and investigate these these middle tier teams. And and so we're not front runners. We're not jerks, um, you know, and we're, we're kind of getting into it. And so we settled on Everton for, you know, any number of reasons, uh, one of which was their goalkeeper at the time, Tim Howard, was American. So that was kind of neat and some kind of tie in. Um, you know, I liked the uniform and it was you know, stupid stuff like that. And, and so we went for it. And as you said, since then, you know, they've been fine. 
<laughs> like it's like they're the baseball equivalent of going 500 every year. You know, they're sort of like an 80 to 83 win team every season. And it's sort of hard to complain about that because, well, it could be much worse. Um, but obviously it, it, it's not like the most exciting thing ever to watch. And they've done this thing, it seems like most years since then, where they get off to a terrible start uh, and then they finish strong. So it's like, oh, man, they're down at the bottom of the table, of the standings. And but they end up finishing like seventh. Uh, because they they have a great second half. So it's like this weird sort of, they they give you some sort of hope in the second half, but it doesn't really end up mattering all that much in the grand scheme of things. But as you said, this year, they seem like good. Um, They seem like they really have their act together. They got off to a good start, which was nice. And so, of course, the cynical fan in me assumed that they would, you know, have a a really bad ending to the season. And there's still time for that to happen. But um, so far, uh, it's been very, very enjoyable. It really has. No, it has. Some excellent players, Calvert-Lewin, Richarlison, all of these people that a lot of listeners are, they have no idea who we're talking about. No, we just did like four minutes on Everton on a podcast that assumingly is going to be listened to mostly by Padre fans. So I apologize. I do not apologize. <laughs> I, I've been looking forward to bring, bringing them up on a podcast with somebody. But, but let's go to baseball. Yes. And, and before we go back to the Padres, unless I'm mistaken, your first broadcast job was calling games in a summer wood bat league. There have to be good stories from that. Oh, my goodness. So yeah, I graduated from the University of Miami in 2004, and I think literally two days after graduation, I got in the car with my dad, and we drove together from South Florida to Elkhart, Kansas, uh, which is in the bottom left-hand corner of Kansas. So it's kind of in that corner where Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado all come together, a part of the country I'd never been. Uh, So we drove there together. It took a couple days. Uh, We... Stopped. I remember one night in Oklahoma City. I just remember watching that night. I think it was the Pistons Lakers NBA Finals. We like watched or, you know, we watched some of that together on the way there. And then we got to Elkhart. I got to stay with a host family. My dad went to Amarillo, which was the nearest international airport about three hours away. And uh, he flew home. And then I was there for the summer. So I'm like, you know, 22 years old, just out of college, living with this host family uh, in rural Kansas. A town, I think at the time, the population was about 2000, which was smaller than the high school I went to growing up. And uh, it was this little team in this little league, you know, college all-star kind of situation. And it was about as much fun as I've ever had in my life. I mean, it was really just an incredible learning experience, not only the broadcasting and doing the games, but just sort of that grind of baseball. And even though it's not nearly what a major league season is, but, you know, just sort of going through everything and like a game every day and beer every night and that sort of thing. And it was it was as much fun as we have. The only hiccup, I guess you could say, is that the team was terrible, like really, really bad. Got our butt speed, it seemed like every single night, unfortunately. They just, you know, weren't necessarily as talented as some of the other teams. That kind of thing happens in those leagues. So we were the doormat and the season went so badly that I think the last weekend we were supposed to play it was like really bad weather forecast. And so they said, you know what? Season over. <laughs> We're not even going to play these final three games because they don't matter. Goodbye, everybody. And then the team actually shut down after that year, the Elkhart Dusters. They had been in existence for quite some time, uh, but they they shut down after that season. That was the last year they, they played, unfortunately. So kind of a sad thing. I wish I had a hat that I kept. That would have been such a cool memento. But, uh, you know, Got to see a couple future big leaguers, you know, that summer. Not that you know it at the time, of course. The only guy from our team who made it to the big leagues was Mike Dunn, the reliever, who's retired now. Gives you a sense of how long it's been. But Mike on that team was like our power-hitting corner outfielder. 
<laughs> and, you know, he makes it as like a, a reliever in the majors. So maybe that tells you a little bit something about the roster that we had. But it was just uh, a lot of fun. You know, it was riding the bus with these guys and getting to know them. Uh, one pitcher let me catch a bullpen of his because, you know, it, it came up that I was a catcher growing up. And so I borrowed some gear and I caught one of his pens, like, you know, between starts and just kind of cool stuff like that that, you know, can't really happen in any other situation. And, you know, I got to see every square inch of the great state of Kansas, you know, that summer. There, there's probably not a town in Kansas that I haven't either been to or driven through at this point. So, you know, and anytime I meet somebody from the Sunflower State, I've got plenty of stories to swap. Yeah, fantastic. And you're, you are probably a better broadcaster now than you were then. And, I hope so. <laughs> and with that in mind, what was your favorite broadcast moment last season? It would have had to have been the second game of the wild card series against the Cardinals. I mean, it was... It was just a ridiculous game. I mean, first of all, everything's on the line because it was lose and go home, you know, as the best of three. And they lost game one at home. And, you know, if you remember, too, from like the the Padre psyche, zeitgeist, whatever, you know, the, the last two times the Padres had been to the playoffs, 05 and 06, the Cardinals had summarily dismissed them in the, in the division series. And so now it's, oh, boy, the Cardinals again. So you're already hearing from some of the fans, oh, no, not the Cardinals, anybody but the Cardinals, even though, of course, completely different Cardinal team from 06 and a completely different Padre team from 06, although I think Yadier was on both um, and Wainwright. But, you know, it was like, oh, boy, they lose game one at home. Cardinals again. Here we go. Game two, fall behind. And then they went crazy. It was like they remembered who they were. Uh, Myers had two home runs. Tatis had two home runs. And it was just like this remarkable evening where the whole thing just clicked and turned. And you knew there was no way they were going to lose game three. You just knew there was no way they were going to lose game three. So it was a lot of fun. Um, They kind of like they they did everything that night that they had done all season when they were successful. It was the home runs. It was the excitement. It was Manny. It was Tatis. It was like, it was just everything. And it was so exciting and so much fun. And the only negative about it, and I, I thought of it 10,000 times during the game, was, you know, imagine if there were people here. Imagine if there were fans here. Because the building, though it was built in 2004 and is very sturdy uh, structurally, it might have come down. I mean, it might have been that loud. It might have just absolutely come down because um, the excitement and the energy that the fans would have provided after a couple of those moments is, is something that, and I'm not exaggerating this time, I think would have shown up on like Richter scales, you know, in Southern California. I mean, it would have been that loud. It would have been that crazy. Um, it was just such remarkable and exciting baseball. And it was such a bummer that, you know, we couldn't share it in person, at least with the fans. Right. And Petco is certainly, a, you know, a fabulous, fabulous ballpark. Yeah. You know, looking ahead to 2021, you know, you mentioned the free agent acquisitions or trade acquisitions, I should say, Snell and Darvish. You mentioned Tatis, Machado. These guys are stars that, you know, they are going to be, they should be great in 2021. Which player to you do you think is likely to be better than he was last year? Not among those guys, but among guys who maybe underperformed this past season. I mean, the crazy thing about last year was I, I don't know how many people underperformed, you know, certainly position player wise. It seemed like everybody, Fam had some injury stuff. So that's a little bit there. I think Grisham outperformed most expectations. Myers outperformed most expectations. Hosmer outperformed most expectations. Jake Cronenworth certainly outperformed expectations. So, I mean, I just went around the diamond and I know I don't have to mention Tatis and Machado. And, and like, I don't think there's anybody there outside of Fam. And again, I call that more injury than anything. So, you know, my mind turns to pitching and, and Chris Paddock is probably, you know, the easy one to to bring up because his rookie year in 2019 was thoroughly dominant 
It was. And, you know, whether it was sophomore slump, whether it was something else, um, whether it was some combination of things in 2020, he wasn't the same guy, um, but he's as hard a worker as there is, and he's got great stuff. So, you know, hopefully it's one of those blips. Um, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of uh, young broadcasters, you know, anybody who reaches out, I try and have a conversation with. And, and one of the lessons I've learned, and this is probably true in most walks of life, but I always share it with them, is that, you know, success is not generally a, a straight line up. You know, I mean, we play the game shoots and ladders as kids for a reason, you know, it's to teach you that lesson, even if it's sort of subconscious and buried somewhere deep in your mind that, yeah, you might go up three steps, but you could then fall back six afterwards. And you just have to sort of keep trying to grind it out. And, and that's kind of what I thought about all year with Chris Paddock. Like, you know, people of course are out there and some of them want to write a guy off when he has one bad year or sometimes even one bad month. And it's like, all right, this was a weird season. His second year in the big leagues, adjustments were made, adjustments need to be made and all those kinds of things. But I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in Chris Paddock. I'm a buyer of Chris Paddock because, um, again, I think the mentality, uh, the work ethic, and the stuff are all there. And um, I'm excited to see what, what 2021 holds for him. And, of course, when you add Darvish and you add Snell and you have Lamette, if Chris Paddock looks like 2019 Chris Paddock, I mean, good luck to everybody else in the National League. Right. And another young pitcher who has not yet gotten an opportunity is Mackenzie Gar the top pitching prospect in all of baseball. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a nice little ace up your sleeve, right? Pun intended. You know, we'll see. Again, hasn't made it to the big leagues yet. Uh, I think we saw him pitch one game in spring training last year. Might have even been the last game before things got shut down. I remember it was rainy and crappy in Peoria. That's sort of my hazy memory of last March, which of course feels like it was 10 years ago. But he's he's a guy that has all the expectations in the world on him. I know they're excited about him. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying he was an untouchable name, you know, when it came to all the trade talks uh, this past year, uh, and, and certainly in the last couple of weeks. And there aren't a lot of untouchables in the system, as you saw, considering they, they dealt Luis Patino, who may have been on that list at one point. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of excitement about Mackenzie Gore, left-hander, funky delivery, uh, what he can bring. And the nice thing is by going out and acquiring guys like Darvish and Snell, you're not asking a rookie who's never pitched in the big leagues before and Mackenzie Gore, heck, I don't think he's pitched in AAA, you know, to, to, to do too much. You know, you're not asking him to lead the staff. You're not asking him to be the ace. You're not asking him to be the third starter, you know, right out of the gate here. You're saying, all right, let's ease him in, see what he's got, see how good he is, see how comfortable he is, and, and sort of let his performance dictate his role. And I think that's the, the best possible scenario, both for, for the individual and for the organization. Right. So he could very well be in the rotation this year. Uh, he could very well not, depending on, on Lamette's health, certainly, and how some of the other, other pitchers perform. One last question, Jesse, as we're running out of time here. World Series, Game 7, be it this year or years to come, the Padres win. You are on the mic. You have the call when the game ends. Mm -hmm. What happens? I won't lie and say I've never thought about it. Uh, there, there have been many drives. So I live about 40 minutes away from the ballpark. So, you know, last year, especially when things were getting ultra exciting uh, with the team and they're having success, I, I, I'm happy to admit that many drives home, dark night, San Diego summer, you know, I'm thinking to myself, man, what would I say? What would I say? Are you um, thinking or are you actually doing play by play in the car? Uh, probably more thinking, although I'm sure I talked out loud to myself at some point because I always do. I'll, I'll say this. I never settled on anything. It's more imaginative at this point. Um, you know, and, and look, there's a million different ways it can end. Uh, somebody tweeted a couple of weeks ago. I forget who it was. Might've been Mark Simon, a really cool, like YouTube compilation of all the radio calls of the final outs of the world series from like 1980 to last year or something like that. Um, so if, if people are really into this stuff, then go search for it. It's kind of neat listening to the different ones and kind of hearing how the different, you know, broadcasters handled it. 
But yeah, it's something I've thought about. It's something I've had fun, like kicking around in my own mind. I have certainly never, you know, made any decision about, oh, I'm going to say this. And I don't know that I would necessarily going into that game. You know, if you're in a clinching scenario, you want to be prepared and you want to be ready and you want to have some thought and some idea. But obviously the call is going to be different if it's, um, you know, a strikeout or if it's a, a, a routine ground ball to second base or if it's a walk off, you know, all the different things you have to be ready for. But yeah, you want to have a general plan going in of, of what this might sound like. But you know, I'll say that one of the thoughts that has, you know, consistently occurred to me while daydreaming about that is, you know, I understand how much it's going to mean to this fan base and to the city. I mean, when you when you consider the whole situation with the Chargers defecting and, and what that did to the psyche of the San Diego sports fan, I just want to always, always, always keep in mind how important this is to the fans. And and look, I'm not one of these people that thinks baseball or sport is the most important thing in the world. Far from it. I know it's not. There's sadly millions more important things going on, you know, than than this little corner of our universe. But in that moment, you know, that time when it happens, I know how important it's going to be to the fans and and most importantly, I want the call to somehow some way be reflective of that. That was Jesse Agler, who someday may get to call a World Series walk-off home run by Fernando Tatis. If he does, hopefully with the world's greatest bat flip. <laughs> okay. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, it has to happen, Jesse. It has to happen. Like a javelin into center field or something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And uh, you and Ted screaming in the booth. <laughs> Again, that's Jesse Agler. I am David Lorla, and thanks for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Listeners, welcome to another Fangraphs audio segment. I am lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen, in case you forgot the sound of my voice because it has been a minute since I've been on. I'm joined today by Ben Clemens, who wrote about stolen bases. Ben, how's it going? Uh, pretty good, Eric. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing the, the list thing where I'm just immersed in thinking about minor leaguers 24-7 for the most part and dealing with the... <laughs> the personal repercussions of that but yeah it's good it's good to do it's just weird and different because there's not the same type of information flow as there would have been in a in a year when there was a minor league season and in some cases that makes this easier and in some cases it makes it much harder so yeah um, i can imagine that trying to update something where teams have told you a guy is different now but where you have no data is probably kind of tricky right and I'm running into, you run into different hurdles with each club. So like I did Boston, a lot of Boston's alt site was on video. So I got to watch a ton of that and have like a first person opinion about some of the Boston prospects at the top of the system that I don't have in other cases. And now I'm working on the twins. The logic there being that like, you know, the twins and Red Sox typically go together for me because... They have, they both have spring training and extended spring training and instructional league in Fort Myers. And often the scouts who see the prospects for one team, see the prospects for the other, just because that's geographically convenient. But in this case, the twins had instructional league, but only played intra-squad games and they opted out of scouting. So they did not allow scouts into their facility to watch the intra-squad games, but they did opt in to video and data sharing from instructional league so now i'm trying to run down like okay what teams would perhaps minnesota have wanted to trade with both you know players and data and video like can i find a team who has their video who i can ask about their opinions about the twins prospects because i think it's pretty 
dumb. Like, no offense, that you know, it's dumb to just ask the team what they think about their own prospects. Like, why are you letting the team drive <laughs> your opinion of their prospects? Seems pretty dumb. But yeah. um, like, hey, Eric, I hear you're selling a used car. What do you think of it? Right. <laughs> it's great. Uh, don't worry, my that achy pop CD that's stuck in the six CD changer and it's broken. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a feature, not a bug. Yeah, the leather seats here in Arizona, it's great. Don't worry about that at all. Yeah, I did have to sell a used car last year. Okay, but we, I wanted to talk to you about the piece that you wrote for the site earlier this week entitled, Do Successful Steals Apply Measurable Pressure? Can you give everyone sort of an overview of what inspired that and the conclusions that you drew and how you drew them? Yeah, so I think I spend a decent amount of time hoping to find things that stolen bases do well. Because I really like steals. They're probably my favorite individual play in baseball. Either a successful steal or a successful bunt for a hit are like my top two. So I think there's a lot of evidence that actually the act of stealing doesn't really do too much to help hitters. Aside from gaining a base. Aside from the obvious measurable stuff. But then I wondered, does the fact that you know someone just stole from you change your behavior as a pitcher in a bad way? Because that actually seems like something that could happen to me. Some of pitching is mental, and no one would argue that it isn't. And when someone just stole from you, and that's kind of in the back of your head, I wondered if hitters might attain better results. So what I did was separated all the situations where there was a runner on second into either that runner just stole or that runner didn't just steal the last three years. And then I stripped out the ninth innings because runs get weird in the ninth inning. And I checked to see whether people scored more runs after steals than after, you know, doubles or advancing on a ground out or advancing on a pass ball or whatever. Any other way to get to second. And basically I found no. That's kind of the long and short of it. It, it doesn't, doesn't right. appear that stealing does anything in this way. So I guess there are definitely instances when the, vari- the variation in the talent that I watch and like sort of their sentience, I guess... It's just pretty common to see players in the minors who aren't up to speed in a major league way where you can see preoccupation with a runner on first seems to impact the way the pitcher is going about their business. But I guess I wouldn't have assumed necessarily that it had an impact on the result of the following hitter. I think it's probably true that big league pitchers are less likely to be impacted by this just because there's like a reason that they're in the big leagues, right? Right. Uh, And some of those are just, they go beyond talent and apply to just procedural elements of of baseball too. Yeah, particularly given that the minors are generally much steel happier than the majors. Right. I think if you had a pitcher who fell apart every time anyone successfully stole a base off of him, well, he'd have to be really good to keep advancing because there's a lot of stolen bases in baseball. Like even now, even with fewer, it's going to happen to you. And if that really kind of meaningfully made you worse, I do wonder if you could keep at it long term or if you'd either work through it or wash out. Your piece raised a bunch of other questions for me, though, and I don't think that you'll be able to answer any or all of them offhand initially, but I'm curious of what your maybe hypotheses about the what I'm about to ask you would be. So the first one is, as you, you there's a table in the piece that, that has like, the run expectancy after a steal or after no steal, you know, you have broken down by outs. Are there, do you think that there would be certain types of pitchers who are or aren't impacted by stolen bases more or less? 
Do you think that, for instance, and see, maybe more of this applies to whether or not a steal would be successful, but do pitchers whose stuff works a certain way, are they more or less vulnerable to stolen bases? Some of the things that popped up in my mind initially were, if you're a pitcher whose breaking ball wants to be buried in the dirt, if that's how you finish a batter is, if your pitch is finishing the dirt, are you more vulnerable to a stolen base? And then I guess my other question would be, are there pitchers who show variation? And I honestly don't know if Savant has this or not. But certainly there are pitchers who vary their timing to home when there is a runner on first base. Right. You have certain pitchers like Tyler Glass now for whom the height of his leg kick is clearly kind of a problem when it comes to holding runners at first base. And then you've got some other pitchers who vary the height of their leg kick to try to keep the runner honest. Right. A lot of people use timing as just an extra pickoff, essentially. Right. But that's before the stolen base is executed. So I do wonder if that has an impact on, I guess, the success of a stolen base. Those characteristics that have to do with the pitcher. And then I guess the thing that is more applicable to your study is, are there pitchers, and then I think more interestingly, are there catchers for which after a runner has successfully taken second base, and it could, this doesn't necessarily apply to stolen bases, it's just if there's a runner on second base now when there didn't used to be. Right. Are there pitchers in, and then are there catchers for which it's easier for that runner on second base for one reason or another to relay signals to the hitter because of the catcher's posture or, you know, something that the pitcher is tipping. But I think it's more often the catcher uh, that can be relayed to home. So is there a way if you were going to structure like scraping data based on this question And I was going to hypothesize that, you know, Gary Sanchez was benched in part because it was easy for runners on second base to discern what was coming and relay that information to opposing hitters. How would you go about finding uh, whether or not that was true? If, If there are certain catchers or certain pitchers for which having a runner on second base does actually impact whether the hitter, like what the performance of the hitter is relative to average. I think... It'd be tough to do it with 2020 data just because you're you're just not going to have that many times where there's a guy on second to be able to actually compare the difference in samples. And another issue is I don't think that many pitchers pitch long enough in the majors to where we have a a representative sample of how different they are with a runner on second versus not. Like how many runners on second are you going to face in the course of a year? If you're a starter, it's not one an inning, so one every other inning, 100? So then it's definitely more applicable to catchers who are just back there for every single runner that's there. Exactly. So I don't think you could really find this about pitchers very much, but it would be an interesting thing to look at in terms of catchers. And I I guess what you do is you would take like an expected result for the batter based on this pitcher, this batter, and a a league-wide multiplier for what happens when there's a runner on second base. Because uh, batters do better when there are runners on regardless of who the catcher is, just overall, on average. Because fielders can't play wherever they want to. Right. They have to play in certain places. Like, that that's just the case. So there's already a multiplier for any batter facing any pitcher with a runner on second. But you could look at whether that catcher's results were meaningfully different. You'd still need, you know, a lot of data to feel confident about this. If you want to find a difference in result level at the plate appearance level, like, skills... You need a big sample of it. Or you need the results to be really different. 
Like if if hitters are five points of average and five points of OBP and five points of slugging better, it's going to take you a long time to to actually be able to tease that out from the data. What about swing and take rates? If I were to take the baseline take rate for breaking pitches. Yeah, that's a much better thing to look at. You don't really want to look at the results. You want to look at whether... Like one thing that you could look at that would be pretty easy and actually would stabilize quickly enough to notice is a like pitch call rate. So like if a if a catcher never calls curveballs when there's a guy on second, or he drops it from calling them a quarter of the time to five percent of the time, that stabilizes a lot more quickly because there's nothing where you're trying to see through the noise to find out what happened. He just called a curveball or he didn't. Right. And same with take rate. I think. Take rate gets a little bit trickier because it's a little bit more contextual. If the pitcher on the mound is like walked the previous guy and then he stole, then maybe take rate goes up. And if the game's a little bit out of hand, maybe take rate goes up because the team wants base runners. But I think you could build a study around that. I'd be very hesitant to do it around anything results oriented. I don't think you can say confidently that like Gary Sanchez makes opposing teams hitters like hit more doubles. I just don't think you'd ever be able to say that. But yeah, I think you could do something around like chase rate, basically. It's interesting that like it is hard to do the results-based stuff for a number of reasons. And even even what pitch is ultimately thrown and where it goes is often not what was initially asked for by the catcher. Right. And the location is not necessarily where the catcher or the pitcher intended – the pitch location to be, even if there is agreement on what should be thrown. When I was at Baseball Info Solutions, we were tracking two things. We were tracking where the catcher located his glove before the pitch, and then ultimately where the ball crossed the plate, as if you could sort of quantify like the delta between those two things, and then therefore quantify command. But of course, then you're assuming... All catchers are goofing with you. Right. You're You're assuming intent there, right? Like you're assuming that where the catcher put his glove is where he wanted the ball and not like he's just giving this pitcher a target to aim at, but the ball is going to finish below that place or, you know, run off the corner of the plate back onto it. Like that yeah. Bartolo Colon sort of two-seam sort of action, especially as pitch framing became a focus of what catchers were doing. Moving from off the plate to on the plate as you received the baseball was a thing that you see more often. So Yeah, I was going to say, I always just think of Cervelli and starting six inches off the ground to catch a pitch that's going to finish two feet off the ground. Right. And he just likes doing that, like, because then his hand's going up, so the ball carries the glove into the zone naturally. And so you would think of all those pitches as missing high. But his pitchers know, if I put my glove six inches off the ground, throw it to hit the bottom of the strike zone. The other thing is I've been talking with folks in baseball about, like, the long-term repercussions of an automated strike zone. I watched a bunch of instructional league games this fall that used an automated strike zone and watched... Uh, Fall League in 2019 at Salt River Fields that also used an automated strike zone. And as you kind of pull that thread and start asking some questions, one of the things that comes up remains pitcher comfort with the catcher is a very important thing to the pitchers that like being able to throw what you want with conviction and confidence that it's going to be caught and or blocked is like a huge, huge deal. And so, yeah, I... I wonder, there's just so much noise in trying to suss out any of the impact of stuff like this. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the idea of an automated strike zone for a number of reasons. I totally get that umpires sometimes can suck, and 
it's horrible for the players that umpires can have a real impact on an at-bat and therefore a game. But I just think that there are more unintended consequences than we realize, certainly more than MLB seems to realize about applying something like this. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so back to the stolen base stuff. Did you learn anything about base stealers during this process, I guess, is my, is my question. I mean, no is like a little bit of a facile answer. And it's, it's not completely no, but I think one thing that I learned about base stealers is that baseball is pretty good about having the better base runners steal bases more so than everyone else. That, that makes a lot of sense. But I think the league has gotten a lot better at that. When you reach second base via steal these days in the majors, and maybe this isn't true in the minors, you are very likely a good base runner. There are a lot less kind of bad base runners attempting steals these days. And I think that's actually, that's an interesting thing for the future. And it does mean that a lot of data we looked at on steals 10, 15, 20 years ago may not make that much sense anymore. It may not follow true. So if you want to to say like, oh, I know this about base stealers based on what happened in 2000 through 2005, it's probably worth trying to reconfirm that. I think that's one thing that I noticed the most. That's not as applicable to the minors because I think a lot of teams, and correct me if I'm wrong, just try to have everyone steal a little bit to figure out if they're good. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that there are some orgs where you can clearly look at like Colorado where guys run like crazy and have in the past in a way where they're like, I can't even remember who the player was at this point. Like Wes Rogers maybe like broke the Cal League stolen base record one year and became interesting on like prospect lists because of that, but really couldn't play. What? Let me see. I'm looking now. Yeah, Wes Rogers, 2017, Lancaster, 70 stolen bases. He's caught 12 times. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. 2019, in advanced A, a couple years later, this was his first year in in high A then. Well, first full season in high A. No, I guess it wasn't. I guess he went to high A the following year then. Anyway, the guy can't hit. Like, it's not real. But for a while there, and there, you can look at the, the entirety of the Colorado system at that time. Like, I'm sure that all of 2017, Lancaster had a bunch of stolen bases but it does seem clear to me that teams yes ask guys to run more often in the minors than they do in the big leagues and some of it is just because the quality of of catching and just the battery in general is worse on average and so i bet you can steal a ton of bases also on that lancaster team with rogers was garrett hampson who stole 51 bases in 65 attempts sam hilliard 37 bags in 54 attempts miles jones a favorite of mine from his college days at bakersfield 34 steals and 50 attempts. Jonathan Daza, like these are a bunch of guys who maybe people have heard of because they've been around um, up near the big leagues. But yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised Hilliard hasn't stolen more bases in the bigs. He has five major league steals. And he can run too. He's he's tooled up. It's just, yeah, look at that. He stole 30, 37, 23, 22 annually until his uh, big league debut in 2019. Yeah. Now he's not exactly getting on base a lot. He has 200 uh, plate appearances in the majors. So in a 600 PA season, I guess he'd project to steal 15 bases, and that's with a you know 300 on base percentage. So it's not like an embarrassingly low rate, but I just kind of expected a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, out of Hilliard. I think, yeah, if I learned one thing about the base stealers from this study, it's just that the people who steal bases these days in the majors don't need to be doing it to get some kind of extra advantage out of being on second. They're just good base dealers. And then I guess my other thing that I wonder about is, does, and I don't think this data is available on Savant, but does the length 
of a runner's lead off of first base have an impact on what the pitcher is doing or, you know, how good he is. If is, is that is looking over there and seeing how far away from first base, does that create any, I don't know, I guess anxiety yeah. or something. I think that'd be very interesting to look at. Like you said, we don't actually have the data, but I'd like to. That's one for Petriello. And one thing that is great about Savant is that they just keep releasing more data over time. I was just before coming to record this, I was messing around with, you know, inferred spin axis from movement versus actual observed spin axis from uh, the Hawkeye cameras. And a year ago, we didn't have that. And now I can say, oh, hey, like I just looked at the Zach Britton pitch and he had like a, a 90 degree deviation from where it left his hand to where it actually crossed the plate. Like the ball moved differently than you would think from just purely his grip. And I think that's pretty cool. So I wouldn't rule out Savant getting this uh, like lead length data in the future. It's not publicly available yet, though I, I guarantee you teams have it. It's recorded. Yeah. yeah, I think that the gap between even as wonderful as Savant is and PitchFX data is that, yeah, I think the gap between what teams are looking at and what we have is is pretty substantial now as as it pertains to the way the athletes are moving through space on the field specifically. Yeah. Uh, but we have stuff like, you know, it's interesting. And when I was on MLB Now and Brian Kenny asked me this question, for whatever reason, I brain farted, but he's like, all right, so what are some of the old school scouting axioms that have been confirmed by data? And yeah, some of them are just like catcher framing. <laughs> the idea that pitchers either do or do not have the ability to spin the baseball and it really isn't malleable, independent of substance, has turned out to be true. And then the other one is that like defenders have instincts, that first step quickness and anticipation are true. We can measure it now. I think that that's at least available on Savant. Yeah. It is wild to me that people used to not think that, or that there was a point in life where they thought, oh, you know what? First step quickness is just the same for everyone. I mean, had they ever stepped? Right. Yeah. Like, I think that... I understand people's desire to quantify stuff before they believe in it. But I think that that one was pretty logical that you could just watch it and know that it was true. But I think that a lot of the folks who are apt to think that way, like show me the proof or it's not true type stuff, aren't the ones who are watching baseball. They just don't have a natural feel for that type of thing. Right. You could show them two completely different fielders who clearly have a difference between their instincts their reads that initial first step and they wouldn't be able to tell that there was a difference there like there's just some people who don't have that visual acuity just like i can't jump high enough to play in the nba it's just one of those things that you either have or you don't and maybe some of us can develop it over time but uh some of us can't so yeah what do you think the next step here is what do you think the next is there anything that you're deriving from this initial look at this that you think merits more consideration so i think one thing that I've decided is worth doing is going back and looking at how batters perform on the pitch where uh, runners are attempting a steal. That requires a little bit of data massaging, so it's not like something I can just do tomorrow. But I think that's something that this has kind of like refocused me on looking at because, like I said, no, looking at the population of the runners who reach second base now and seeing that it's so different than it was 15 years ago makes me wonder how much I should believe those old sabermetric axioms, which were certainly true then, but may not be now. And so that's something that I plan on doing. I think that's kind of the main takeaway for me. It's not surprising to me, even though I hoped the answer would be different, that successfully stealing is just the end of it. You successfully steal, and then that's that. You're on second. 
that that always seemed like the most likely outcome. It's sad to me that it was, but I do think now it's worth looking at what actually happens during that successful steal. Yeah, that's interesting. I think in all sports, probably, there are little marginal things that at one point were inefficient and therefore were being exploited in some way. And then once the player population or coaches or advanced scouting became aware of them and this sort of methodology became more common, that people's awareness of the situation changed the results. So like in the NFL, remember when the Dolphins ran the Wildcat offense for a little while? Yeah. And it kind of worked. And then as soon as it became a little bit more popular throughout football and you could put it on film, it became less effective. And now I think watching, again, this is just hypothetical, but like watching football, watching... Uh, some of the guys like come across the line of scrimmage, tight ends and receivers who like look like they're going to be an inline blocker. And then there's play action and they come across the line of scrimmage laterally, like to the opposite side of the field. Those guys aren't, their defenders aren't getting lost in the shuffle as they come back across the field as much anymore. Like they're aware that even though Travis Kelsey has just come in motion to this side of the field and there's play action to his side of the line of scrimmage. Right, he's leaking. He's leaking out to the uh, to the opposite side of the field. Like that play is not nearly as effective as it was when it was new and and teams weren't anticipating it. And I do wonder if yeah, if you start to tell hitters, look, when there's a stolen base attempt, you suck. Like your <laughs> your the swing decisions are much worse. Your ability to contact the ball goes down this much because you're preoccupied with what's going on with the runner to some extent. Right. I if agree you with that. Just tell them him. to refocus, right, will it ultimately change the results? If you say, just ignore that guy and do your thing, whatever it is you were, would do ordinarily on this pitch type and location, just do that. Uh, will it ultimately change results? And yeah, I think that there's probably places in baseball over the last 10 years, uh, little intricate things have changed based on teams becoming and making their players aware of stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's the case. I do wonder if some of it is just that you see the runner. And you sure. see the, the fielder moving to the base and your eye just says, oh, there's movement happening. And right. it makes it harder to pick up the baseball. Like an example of that would be, so people are getting a lot better at picking out like patterns that people didn't run 15 years ago. But a play designed to beat cover two is still pretty good against it. Right. Yeah. So like you, you can know that that's going to happen. And it's like, well, I still have one guy to cover two spots. And I, I don't know whether this will be the, like that. Or like the fact that defenders are getting a lot better at guarding different plays. But both of those are possible. And I think it'd be interesting to look at the data to find out which it is. All right. Well, that concludes another Fangraphs audio segment. I'm Eric Longenhagen for Ben Clemens. Thanks for listening. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you again to our Fangraphs members for helping us do everything we do. We will be back with another episode this week. Talk to you then.